Hey, thanks for tuning in to the latest sermon. We pray that it challenges you, blesses you, and ultimately that it would stir your heart's affection for Jesus. Enjoy. Great. Let's uh, pray together before we jump into the message. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you have done. And as the song says, I pray that we would pour out our affection and our devotion upon your feet, Jesus, as we worship you as the risen and living Savior and King. And I pray that we would be continually reminded um, that you, you desire that we would follow you and that you have given us of your Holy Spirit so that we may be empowered to do so. So I pray as we come into the message, the words of Scripture this morning, um, that our hearts and minds and imaginations be captivated uh, by who you are. I pray for this fall series. I pray that as we look at your words and your miracles, your teachings, that we would just have a, a more profound sense of who you are. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, one of the things that I like to try and do when I read through the Gospels, and the Gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is I often try and imagine the scene that is being described, right? I like to try and imagine, um, you know, the life of Jesus. And some of the most fascinating accounts for me are times when Jesus is having interactions, or maybe better said, when he's having confrontations with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And you might have noticed that the religious leaders of the people, the Pharisees, um, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes they seem intent on pestering Jesus with a barrage of questions. So when I'm imagining this scene in my mind, um, I'm sort of imagining like paparazzi with celebrities, right? They're constantly there. They're constantly badgering them like, answer my question, answer my question, take a look at me, let me take your picture. I mean, they're not taking his picture, but they're really, they're really kind of all around him, right? Just like how you see pictures of like a celebrity surrounded by paparazzi and they're all kind of like demanding his attention. And, and that's sort of the, the image that I have in my mind. And one of the things we should realize about the Pharisees is that many times when they're questioning Jesus, they're not asking him questions in good faith. So that means, what that means is that they're not trying to actually understand anything. They're trying to ask questions that will trick Jesus or trap Jesus into saying something that will ruin his reputation. And I think this might be one of the reasons why we actually see a transition in Jesus' teaching ministry, where Jesus begins to teach primarily in parables. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record a day when Jesus sort of shifts his teaching style into, into teaching mostly in parable form. He kind of shifts from the direct teaching style, and he begins to use parables. And even his disciples are actually confused by this. They ask him, why do you speak in parables? Like, he hadn't been doing this, and now all of a sudden it's like all parables. And Jesus replies, he says, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. I think this is a really difficult saying of Jesus for lots of us, because it seems like Jesus is saying he only wants some people uh, to hear his message. And then the vast majority of the crowds, he really doesn't care about, he doesn't even want them to understand. And, and we got to wonder, like, is that really what Jesus is getting at? That, that only a few select people would be given the knowledge of salvation. I don't think that's really the thrust of what Jesus is getting at here. So we should understand that Jesus is not deliberately frustrating people who came to hear him speak. He used parables, as Charles Swindoll says, 
to make his teaching less interesting to those not genuinely interested. Curiosity seekers found very little to entertain them. And I would add the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law who were just trying to trip Jesus up and kind of trap him into uh, answering poorly would have a lot harder time asking him tricky questions about scripture and trying to set Jesus up to fail because it's really hard to, he just told a story. How do you... How do you argue with that? So we're beginning a series on the parables and the miracles of Jesus for the fall, because I love in the fall to just sort of refocus our attention and our hearts on Jesus. And so I thought, why don't we do the words of Jesus in his parables and the works of Jesus in his miracles? We're not going to get through all of them because there's a lot, but we're going to get through some of my favorites because they're my favorites, you know, (laughs) like why not? So so we're going to do it. Um, But I think that, you know, before we get there, I just want to start with why parables? Like, why is he teaching in parables? And I think Charles Swindoll is right. I think Jesus is wanting to speak to the ones who really want to wrestle with and try to understand what he's trying to say. So I think what you're actually going to see is that Jesus is done with the bad faith questions of the Pharisees, who are really now just distracting the crowds of people by constantly pestering Jesus with questions about their own interpretations of scripture and law. And so Jesus is now wanting people who will follow him, not because they always understand everything that he says, but because they believe he is worth following, that he has words of life, that even if they don't fully understand it, there's still something that draws their heart to him, that they go, I don't fully understand this, but there's something of truth here, and I'm going to wrestle with that. I'm going I'm to sit and think on that and meditate on that. So to get there, to kind of notice the shift, before we get into any of the parables, this sermon, I want to examine the last two run-ins that Jesus has with the Pharisees before he begins this new phase of speaking primarily in parables. And I think what you're going to find is that these, these two confrontations with, with some of the Pharisees... Um, And then all of a sudden there's a shift into speaking in parables. And I think those are related. So I wanted to go there. And one of the areas where Jesus and the Pharisees get into the biggest conflicts is about keeping the laws of the Sabbath. That and hand washing. But a lot of times keeping the laws of the Sabbath. So Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus just seems to go consistently out of his way to go against the Pharisees' Sabbath laws. Like even when he heals the man who is lame, he does it on Sabbath And he tells the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Well, guess what? The Pharisees said you're not allowed to carry a mat on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry a burden like that. So why would Jesus say, get up and pick up your mat? He's healing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees don't like that. He's carrying a mat on the Sabbath. The Pharisees don't like that. I'm like, Jesus is going out of his way to to draw the Pharisees into conversation over what's really important about the Sabbath. And these two run-ins that we're going to go into are, are taking place on the Sabbath day. And the reason that the Sabbath day is so important is the Sabbath day is the focus point for, for the Jewish people, right? There was feast days and there's other special days, but every week you have the Sabbath, which is a reminder of who they were as God's chosen people. It's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, right? Keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. So the Sabbath was absolutely a focal point for these religious teachers and leaders, which is why they went so overboard with the rules and the regulations. So for to keep the Sabbath holy, the religious teachers decided, well, we need to like put safeguards for the people. So they came up with 39 forbidden activities, and then under those 39 activities, there was all these subpoints totaling hundreds. So there's literally hundreds of laws that you have to think about on the Sabbath day that you cannot do. So in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus challenges the Pharisees' beliefs about the Sabbath, and this deeply angers them. 
Our first passage today is in uh, Matthew chapter 12. And it begins like this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Okay, this can be easy to overlook. But remember how I like to say, I like to imagine the scene. So Jesus and his disciples are walking somewhere on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are walking right alongside Jesus, counting his steps. Because they had a law that you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. So why do you think the Pharisees are walking alongside Jesus? Because they're going, just wait, he's going to break the law here. If he takes 10 more steps, he's going to break the law. And then we've got him. Then we can tell everybody he's a blaspheming lawbreaker. But before Jesus can even hit the travel limit, his disciples pick heads of grain. And they go, that is unlawful to do on the Sabbath. So remember how I said it's like the paparazzi stalking a celebrity? That's why I have that image. They are just watching him. I can't, if we could get a scandalous thing here, then we've got the story, right? And so the Pharisees are doing that. They're, they're following him. Now, the Pharisees had created these laws, right? And, uh, and, and one of the laws was that you couldn't, you couldn't pick a head of grain. But that's kind of interesting because that's actually a lawful thing to do. If you go to Deuteronomy 23, 25, the law says this. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you can pluck the heads with your hand, but you should not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So according to the law, it's totally fine to pick some heads of grain if you're hungry. And the, and the law does not consider that harvesting. That's a really key thing to remember. The law does not consider that harvesting. That's just picking a few heads of grain. The Pharisees' issue is not that the disciples are taking grain, it's that they're taking it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had determined that plucking a couple heads of grain was harvesting and was therefore illegal on the Sabbath. So according to the law of the Pharisees, if you plucked a few heads of grain, that was harvesting. Rubbing it in your hand was, uh, was grinding the grain and blowing the chaff like this was winnowing. And they're like, if you pick a head of grain and do that, you've harvested. But come on, we all know that's not harvesting. Right? And even the law in Deuteronomy 23, 25 is like, that's not considered harvesting. So they kind of went above and beyond. So they had reasoned, well, that's working. And if you work on the Sabbath, that's a violation of the Sabbath command to rest. So the Pharisees make that claim. You're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Now we should just take a moment here to see what God actually says about the Sabbath. What are the regulations that God put on the Sabbath day? Well, here's what the Lord commanded regarding the Sabbath. He says, these are the instructions the Lord has commanded you to follow. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on that day must be put to death. You must not even light a fire in any of your homes on the Sabbath. Let's just give the Pharisees a little bit of a break here. They saw how seriously God took the Sabbath, and they said God wants anyone who works to be put to death, so let's take this seriously. We can applaud them. Like that, that They are trying to do what is right because they understand the holiness of God. And they're trying to get people to understand uh, the holiness of God. It's just that they, they sort of misinterpret the, the purpose of it. And so, but that's really the command of the Sabbath. Rest, remember the Lord, do no work, don't even build a fire. And there's a few other things mentioned about Sabbath by God. He says, don't collect firewood, don't trade any goods, don't harvest or reap, don't carry any burdens. But there really isn't anything else to it. So if we actually kind of look at what the purpose of this, this command is, it's a command to refresh yourselves in the Lord, rest in the presence of the Lord, 
Worship the Lord Most High. Remember that he provides for you. You don't have to work seven days a week because the Lord is your provision. Enjoy life with your friends and family and enjoy the life that your creator has given you. So it's really a day of refreshment, rest, and worship. There's no burdensome laws in this command. The Sabbath should actually be enjoyable. To do no work simply means if you're a farmer, don't go work the fields. If you're a fisherman, don't go out and do a day's worth of work. Don't even make food over the fire just because that's a lot of work when you don't have a stove and an oven and a crock pot or an instant pot, right? So you got to bake the fire, you got to do all the... So it's like, hey, just rest and worship. Rest and worship and remember and trust that the Lord is the one who provides. So notice when the Pharisees ask, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? They're not actually referring to God's law because God's law does not see picking a couple heads of grain as harvesting. God's law on the Sabbath is actually pretty wide open. It's got no further commands than to make sure you're resting, make sure you're not working and keep that day holy. Worship God and, and remember him. So the Pharisees, when they say you're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, they're actually referring to a law that they'd sort of made up these extra rules and regulations that they made. As good intentioned as they were, they actually created a religion that was burdensome. Jesus says it was a burden that was too heavy for any man to bear. And so the Pharisees, right, they're terrified that they might actually do, accidentally do something that God considered work. And they're like, man, if you rub a few handfuls of grain, God might strike you dead. Again, it's like this idea that they've got part right, that God is holy. And, and there are things that God desires for us to do and not to do, but they just miss the purpose of the law. So intent on the letter of the law, they miss the purpose of the law, which is to rest and worship and enjoy the presence of God. So they get hung up on the details. And by creating all these extra laws, they made the day of rest into one of the most exhausting days of the week. Right? Because can you imagine trying to, to do the Sabbath and being like, well, I can't go here because that would violate my step commandment. And I can't uh, have a snack because that would violate the Pharisees' rule about rubbing grains in my hand. And so there's, it actually becomes an exhausting day. So the Pharisees, the, Jesus has to respond to the Pharisees' accusations. So when the Pharisees ask, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? We come back into, uh, into Mark, Matthew chapter 12 here. And Jesus says this. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Okay, again, let's let's notice something about what Jesus says here. He asks them a very sarcastic question when he asks the Pharisees, the teachers and leaders of the law, the ones who study the words of Scripture diligently, the Torah and the historical books, have you never read what David did? It's like asking a pastor, don't you know John 3.16? Right? It's like, no, of course I know. Like, these guys know David. They love David. They know everything about David. So when Jesus says, have you never read David? That's a pretty uh, inflammatory question. Have you never read David? And then the story that Jesus refers to is really interesting. The story that, that Jesus is referring to is, is when David is on the run from Saul because Saul's trying to kill him. So David and his men flee to the tabernacle. Because they're on the run, there's no time for them to be gathering food or anything like that. So by the time they get there, they're starving. And David asks if he can eat the consecrated bread. Now, here's what you need to know. God made a law regarding the bread in the tabernacle. God said in his law that only the priests could eat the bread that was consecrated in the tabernacle. That was not a man-made law. That is a God-given law. And yet when David and his men need food, it's okay for them to eat what is normally unlawful to them. 
So did David eat the forbidden showbread? Absolutely he did. And on that same account, David actually told a blatant lie. He lied to the priest, Ahimelech the priest. He said, the king has ordered me about on some business. And the king has said to me, do not let anyone know anything about this business, which I have directed your men to do, to go to such and such a place. That's a lie. King Saul never ordered David to go anywhere. David is running from Saul, who's about to kill him. So David lies to the priest and eats the bread that God said no man should eat but the priest. But it was fine. So the fact is Jesus is pointing out the unlawful actions of David to a group of hypocritical Pharisees who apparently had overlooked David's like blatantly sinful actions in 1 Samuel 21, if we want to hold to the letter of the law. And my speculation is why is it okay for David to clearly break something God said do not do? It's because God desires mercy, not sacrifice. So these same Pharisees wrongly criticized Jesus and his apostles for breaking a Sabbath law that isn't even a Sabbath law because in truth, the only law that Jesus' disciples were breaking was the Pharisaical addition to the law, forbidding the rubbing of handfuls of grain, which again, reasonable people would not consider the same level as harvesting. And again, in regard to the Sabbath law, God made the Sabbath for us. It's for us. Jesus is gonna say that. It was never supposed to become another religious burden to bear. It was supposed to be a place where we enjoy the presence of God through worship and rest and trust. The gospel writer Mark remembers that Jesus added this at the end of his discussion with the Pharisees. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing to people, a day off, a time of rest and worship and remembrance of God's presence. But it turned into a day that burdened people. It's kind of like, I put it like this, if you want to do a more modern day kind of take on it, um, is that policy should serve people, people should not serve policy. Because sometimes you run into like organizations where they have all these policies, but the policies are actually a hindrance to people's thriving and well, well-being. But it's like, no, well, God, this is the policy. And it's like, no, no, people come first. And, and Jesus is really saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's like, it's not about you have to do all this stuff so that the Sabbath is upheld. The Sabbath is for your good. The Sabbath is for your well-being. And ending the conversation, Jesus adds at the end of it, I, the son of man, am master even of the Sabbath. That's a shocking statement to make. The Sabbath had become the focus of the whole, the whole religion. It was one of the most sacred days of the week. And the Pharisees ruled over it with all of these extra laws and, and rules that made them feel very pious. And here Jesus says, I am the master of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming all authority over the Sabbath and the law. He's, he's really actually taking a very defiant stance here. He's defying the whole man-made religious system that Judaism had become under this law. So if we go deeper with Jesus' claim, we find out something really important. Not only does Jesus have authority over the Sabbath, so he's kind of being like, hey, I'm the master of the Sabbath. If, if I say my disciples can pick grain, they can pick grain. He's not putting himself above the law. He's just trying to teach them what the law actually says. But deeper than that, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Everything that the Sabbath was supposed to be could now be found in Jesus, who is the master of the Sabbath. Jesus maybe says it best when he says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. So that word Sabbath means a deep rest, a deep peace. It implies a wholeness and a flourishing in all aspects of life. Timothy Keller writes, when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus means that he is the Sabbath. He is the source of the deep rest that we need. 
Remember that Jesus did not come to do away with the laws, but to be the fulfillment of them. Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. And so the law of the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus, and the law of the sacrifices is fulfilled in Jesus. The Apostle Paul explains it maybe better in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, do not let anyone condemn you for what you eat or what you drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules were only shadows of the real thing, Christ himself. So the law of the Sabbath was, was good and it was a shadow of the real thing, which is Christ, which is Jesus. So we need to understand that Jesus is the source of our rest. He is our Sabbath. Now we still practice Sabbath rest. It is a commandment. But we don't practice it by following a bunch of rules. We follow it by coming to Jesus. We follow it by coming together in worship. By coming together as community and, and making space for Jesus uh, to speak to us and inform us. We, we, we practice Sabbath by worshiping together. That's how we do Sabbath with Jesus at the center. It's not by adherence to man-made regulations, like you gotta do this, you can't do that, you gotta do this, you can't do that. It's by making space to worship and rest in the presence of Jesus, who is the source of, the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So by using the story of David, Jesus is addressing the tension between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And in the next Sabbath controversy, we're gonna see that this tension between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law becomes the focus. But before we get to my next Sabbath controversy, and it's just a, a quick example, but I, I want to give another example when I, so we understand what I'm talking about when I say there's the letter of the law or there's the intent or the spirit of the law. And I want to do it by just kind of giving you a hypothetical illustration. It's just hypothetical. I don't know the laws. Of the, so anyways, imagine with me that one evening, a young policeman flags down a car speeding at 15 kilometers over the speed limit. And the driver tries every trick in the book to avoid getting a speeding ticket, but nothing works. The letter of the law says he's broken the law. He has to receive the appropriate penalty as set forth by the law. And that's good. That's the law doing its job. The law is put in place to protect people, to protect our roadways, to make the country safe for all. That's the purpose of the law is for people to be safe. And if you break the law, you should be ticketed or fined as appropriate. Okay, so that's good. He's doing his job. Later, however, this young, inexperienced constable flags down another car that's speeding 15 kilometers over the speed limit. But it really becomes apparent why he was speeding. In the back seat, he sees the man's wife holding a very sick young girl. And, and this daughter of his is gasping for breath, and it's very clear they're rushing her to the nearest hospital. And it's pretty clear that this driver would normally be a law-abiding man in full agreement with the law, and yeah, a full supporter of the law, but life has currently dealt him a hand that has resulted in this situation. The young constable, though, he's upholding the law. So he proceeds to book the driver. The law has no get-out clauses. He's going over the speed limit. No ifs, ands, or buts. He's not getting off the hook. He's going to carry out the letter of the law. So as the young girl gasps for breath in the back seat, he asks the driver to turn off his engine, get out, produce his license. He gets out his booking ticket, proceeds to fill out every line in the booking ticket meticulously to make sure that it is correct. Now, the burden that the driver was in with a clearly sick young daughter in the back seat needing to get to the hospital has now had his burden increased by the actions of the constable, because the constable is upholding the law. Just then, a senior officer happens to come by, sizes up the situation, asks the young constable to hand over the ticket, tears it up, says to the constable, obviously mercy is called for here, asks the driver to get back into his car and follow him, and then that police car sets off at 30 kilometers over the speed limit all the way to the hospital. 
And the young constable is thinking to himself, my superior officer is soft on the law. My superior officer promotes lawlessness in the land. The law is clear. That is the speed limit, and he has exceeded it. So what we see clearly is that the senior officer's grace and mercy in no way compromised, weakened, or broke the law, but it demonstrated the spirit behind the law, which was to keep people safe. And when a young girl is gasping for breath, then the law becomes keep that girl safe. So in this illustration, we see how adherence to the letter of the law with no thought to the spirit or the purpose of the law will often be harsh, it will add to the burdens of the people, and will be ineffective in accomplishing its goal. And this is what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were doing to the law of the Sabbath. They were so concerned with the letter of the law, they missed the purpose and the heart of the law. And our next controversy, which I'll go through quickly here, illustrates that mindset. Uh, Matthew has this controversy, but Mark, uh, oddly enough, adds more detail. So I'd like to use Mark's account of this. It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 and onwards. It says, Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up. In front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. It's really hard to imagine a group of people who are so hard-hearted, who are so blind to good things and truth, that they would see a crippled man in their midst and hope that he would be healed, not for the sake of the man, but so that they can bring a legal charge against the one who healed him. That's next level hard-heartedness. How twisted that is. And that's really what legalism does. It blinds people to the full truth and twists their hearts to be harsh and cold. So imagine a religious system where it's illegal to heal someone on the Sabbath. A day that's supposed to be about glorifying God and resting from the day-to-day burdens of life had suddenly become a day where the sick were meant to suffer, where where the dying sometimes received no comfort because according to the made-up laws of the Pharisees, it was illegal to give medical care to someone on the Sabbath. You could help them if they were actually going to die. Like if they're bleeding out, you can bind their wound. And you could deliver a baby because what are you going to do? Like hold it in? So, you know, not, I mean, even they knew that's not practical, right? So, but that was it. Like if you're dying, you can receive medical care. If you're giving birth, you can have the baby. But other than that, you can't even wrap a bandage around somebody. They would say, that's blaspheming the law. So Jesus has to challenge them here. He addresses them. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? And this is such a great response, this question. There's no way they can answer this question. If they say, well, it's lawful to do good, and it's certainly lawful to help someone, well, then they would affirm that Jesus absolutely can heal the man, and it wouldn't violate the Sabbath at all. But then they have no accusation against them because they've given them official authorization. That doesn't serve their purpose because they want to bring a charge against them. So they can't say that. They can't say he's allowed to heal him. It's, it's not, they can't say it's good to, to do good on the Sabbath. But on the other hand, if they say, well, no, it's lawful to do evil and destroy somebody, well, then they've just revealed how merciless and harsh their hearts are, and they can't do that either, so they remain silent. There's no way to answer this question that works for them. But what it really does is it demonstrates when it comes to real-life practical realities, the harsh legalism of the Pharisees made no sense. It, it didn't help people. It didn't help people thrive or enjoy God. 
And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. By strict adherence to their man-made rules, they missed out on the heart behind the Sabbath law, which was to worship God, enjoy God, and rest from the burdens of life. And what would fulfill the heart of the Sabbath law more than being healed? Would the man with the healed hand not worship more? Would he not enjoy God's goodness more? It would fully fulfill the heart of the Sabbath to heal the man. It would, it would get to the heart of the Sabbath law, which was to worship God and enjoy his presence. But the legalism of the Pharisees missed the heart of the law in favor of the letter of the law. And then this is one of my favorite stories. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out to begin plotting how they might kill Jesus. That is wild to me. Imagine this. A man is healed. And the religious leaders of the New Living Translation puts it, are wild with rage. And it is almost hard to believe that they would rather a man remain deformed than to have Jesus break their sacred man-made Sabbath rules. But when people adhere to the letter of the law without understanding the purpose of the heart behind it, they can go wildly off track. And I just think it's incredible to me that one of the main reasons that they want to kill Jesus is because he healed a man on the Sabbath. How dare you make someone's life better (laughs) on the Sabbath? These two different Sabbath controversies show us that, that the law is good when it points us to Christ who fulfills it. The law was our guardian until Christ came. But the law gets twisted when it surpasses Christ, when it supersedes Christ. So let us find our contentment in Christ Jesus himself, who is the fulfillment of the law. And let us come to Christ, who is our joy, our refuge, our rock, our peace, and our salvation. And I think you can understand now why in Matthew 13, Jesus starts to say many things in parables. And why his disciples are like, why are you now teaching in parables? I think it becomes clear that there has to be a shift in how Jesus teaches so that those who have ears to hear can hear and that those who will have eyes to see will see. In the weeks to come on this sermon series on parables, we might not perfectly understand all that Jesus was teaching. Even as I preach on the parables, I recognize that some parables are just difficult to interpret because Jesus is using parables to reshape how people thought about God and about who God was and about what living for God was all about. Parables are actually meant to be meditated on, to be wrestled with. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I get people like, tell me what the answer is to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. I I don't know. I, I have to read the scriptures. I have to wrestle with it. I have to study it. I have to think about it. Because that's what the parables are meant to do. They're meant to drive us to deeper engagement. They're meant to draw us in and, and wrestle with what Jesus is saying. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by this? And it all is meant to draw us closer to Jesus. So it's okay to be puzzled by the parables. The disciples were, the crowds were, but it's a way of Jesus to invite us to keep seeking, keep learning, keep listening to the words of life. I'm going to call the worship team up uh, just before we close here, but I just want you to remember as we go through the parables, just remember that it is Christ Jesus himself who is the fulfillment of all things. And we need to listen to what Jesus teaches because he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And so what I would encourage you to do as we go through this series is uh, be curious. Study the words of Jesus and the parables for yourself as we go through this series. The wonderful thing about parables is it kind of follows that track of wisdom literature. And so as each person studies the parables, the Holy Spirit might reveal something new or different to them. And they might say, I think, it might, I think there's a meaning here. 
And we can go, I think that might be right. And so we get to do this together. And I'm going to do my best to teach this well based on all the reading and research and commentaries that I do. But I really invite you to be curious for yourselves. Read these parables. Wrestle with what they're saying. Just let it draw you closer to Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your, your great wisdom that you demonstrated in your life when you, you had these encounters with the Pharisees. We thank you that you came and, and showed that, that man-made rules and, and systems and regulations become a burden that is too heavy for us to bear. So Lord Jesus, I pray that we would live in the freedom that you have secured for us. Not freedom to sin so that grace may abound all the more, but freedom to live the way we are always meant to live, led by your Holy Spirit, producing and bearing good spiritual fruit. And so we ask Holy Spirit, that we would follow God's law, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way, by the power of the Spirit at work in us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.